Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Make sure not to miss a single podcast and subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite subscription service. The views expressed in this presentation are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Army War College, U.S. Army, or Department of Defense. Welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. My name is Tom Galvin, and I'm an associate professor at the U.S. Army War College in the Department of Command Leadership and Management, or DCLM. And I'm here to introduce a new special series for A Better Peace called How the Army Should Run. This is a planned series of podcasts where we will discuss various topics in defense management. And our inaugural episode in this series will be about organizing the defense enterprise. And with me is Professor Lou Youngert, who is Professor of Defense Leadership and Management in DCLM, and who was the director of the War College's defense management course for five years. Welcome, Lou. Hey, well, thanks. It's good to be here. Yeah, I'd like to start with, uh, what do we mean by defense management? I mean, the topic of this uh, podcast. What is it? So at, at the War College and in, in our department, we've been trying to teach our students the business of the Army or the, de- the business of the Department of Defense uh, because we think that that is what our graduates will be doing for, the, for most of the remainder of their career. Uh, We've, that's been borne out with some studies where somewhere in the 60 to 70 percent uh, of our graduates will do some enterprise or an institutional job uh, after they graduate. And so we're trying to prepare them for that. And in that it's, so what is the business of the Army or the business of the Department of Defense? It is creating capabilities, it's resourcing it's making decisions on strategy and guidance and those kinds of things. And so that's what I would say defense management is. And uh, even for those who are going from here to be brigade commanders, they'll do their command for two years, and then they'll probably spend the rest of their time doing the business end. So even for those who aren't going straight into the Pentagon per se, this is the domain that a lot of them are going to be working. Well, and I also think that those that are going into brigade command uh, as we know and we have been teaching, uh, their job becomes more uh, up and out than down and in, and up and out runs them right into the defense enterprise so that their understanding of it will help them be a better brigade commander. Absolutely. And so some of the topics that uh, we're looking at, uh, in addition to resourcing, in particular, like, say, the planning, programming, budgeting, and execution system, we're going to be talking about capability development, uh, science and technology, acquisition, force management, all of these are going to be part of the series. Now, uh, the title how the Army Should Run, we, we might as well mention this as well, uh, it's a play on one of the seminal works that DCLM produces and that is now available on the War Room uh, website. It's called How the Army Runs, a Senior Leader Reference Guide, uh, also known as the HTAR. And you've been the, uh, the chief editor of this for five editions now. It's, run, it's published biannually, and it's with the U.S. Army Force Management School. You want to talk a little bit about the HTAR? So in, in the Department of Command Leadership and Management, uh, beginning in the 70s, we had 
something published that was called the Army Command Leadership and Management Theory and Practice. And we, you know, we're sitting in the Sarah Morgan room right now, and there's there's editions of that that we can look at on the shelf. And in 1997, uh, it transitioned to how the Army runs a, a reference manual, and uh, it documents Army processes, uh, so we can teach some of the kinds of things that we just discussed. And some years ago, a commandant when I became the editor, when I was getting that commandant to sign out the title page, said, have you ever thought about writing a book that how the army should run? <laughs> because everyone says, it, uh, we're, we're uh, documenting processes. Are they good processes? Or, or could they be better? Could we do better? And so that idea has been germinating for a while. And uh, so here we are today. Yeah, and we also want to uh, stress that the series, although the series is called How the Army Should Run, um, we're going to be covering a lot of defense and joint topics as well. And even the, the How the Army Runs guide includes reference to, you know, how army systems nest with the joint and, de and the defense levels. So it's, it's going to cover the full gamut of the defense enterprise. So... Uh, in order to access the uh, the current and the past editions, you just need to go to the War Room website and click on the Reference Materials tab at the top of, uh, of the page. Now, our primary topic for today is about how the Department of Defense is organized, which of course includes the services, includes the uh, service departments. Uh, so let's open the conversation this way. What's the purpose of the Department of Defense uh, because it is still a relatively new organization. And, uh, you know, how did how did it evolve over time? So the Department of Defense was you know, created after World War II sort of as a, uh, a way to improve uh, the peacetime uh, management of what we were now calling the defense enterprise. And some of the things that were done in World War II, in both the run-up to World War II and then through the, uh, the time period where we were fighting Germany and Japan, were workarounds to the organization. And so after the war was over, uh, the War Department that was the home to the Army and the Army Air Corps that was becoming uh, the Department of the Air Force and the Navy Department, uh, there was a discussion of then with then President Truman, how can we make this better, uh, this lash up better, so that we can, with the idea that we can provide forces and more effectively uh, fight when we need to. And over time, the purpose of the Department of Defense has become to do that, but also to deter uh, potential adversaries so that we don't have to fight because it's so expensive in many different ways, not just money, uh, to actually do that, to, f to fight. Uh, we have spent a lot of money and time and effort deterring our adversaries so that we don't have to fight, so that they won't want to fight. Uh, so th the way it came in being was really a fight between the War Department at the time with uh, General Marshall as the, as the, uh, the chief of the Army staff and the Navy Department. And the War Department uh, was behind an effort to uh, have a, a defense department that included military departments of Navy, Air Force, and the Army 
and the real fight was over what was called the the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And th- there had been a Joint Chiefs of Staff during the during the war, but it was ad hoc. It was something that the president wanted or needed to get advice. And so, how do we do that so that uh, it's more effective during peacetime and uh, other wars that we have to fight? And the the compromise that came out of it was a Joint Chiefs of Staff uh, that didn't have a chairman. And the three members of the Joint Chiefs of Staff uh, would only give advice or could only give uh, advice or options unanimously. And that was what the Navy wanted because they didn't want to be overridden by the Air Force and the, and the Army. They wanted to maintain their own uh, primacy in their, in their domain, that's what we're calling a domain now, uh, and, and wouldn't budge. And they threw up a lot of uh, objections to uh, why we would take authority away from the Navy Department and the, and the uh, other departments. And this is what we ended up with. So in, in Truman's, uh, by what President Truman ended up doing was in order to get a deal, he gave in to the Navy and made what we ended up with was a weak Joint Chiefs of Staff, a joint staff that was small and did some support to the Joint Chiefs, and there was really no joint force that came out of it. So that's 1947, and from 47 until today, there have been a number of different attempts to uh, capture some of the things that were, were in the original thought or design. Uh, the the chairman was created in 1949. Uh, the secretaries of the military departments at that time in 1949 were removed from the cabinet. They were no longer cabinet level, so the, only the secretary of defense was cabinet level. And that was a major um, a major change. But the chairman didn't have any had no authority and had no power. I don't even think at that time the chairman had a vote. Uh, so. So it basically began and and remained for quite some time service led still, and this became came to a head sometime later when we started to see uh, service programs that were being that were basically redundant or different services were pursuing new capabilities or the same capabilities. Right, and this is where now we started to see a little bit more centralization, a little bit more efforts to try to get. The service is aligned and put a bit more emphasis on jointness. So, and I would say that that over many attempts from Eisenhower to some work on the budgeting side with uh, the Kennedy administration um, and uh, Secretary McNamara, there were some things that were improved or changed, but the budget still remained with the military departments. Congress did sort of likes that because they get to. They don't. They don't have to work just with the Secretary of Defense. They can. They can get what they want and put what they want in different budgets for the different services. And in 1986, the biggest change that came about was to what we're talking about, which is uh, to joint operations. Was the Goldwater Nichols Act, and it um, it really strengthened the chairman to a point where the chairman had some real power. Although it was more influence than power, still doesn't have authority to 
he's not a commander. He doesn't have authority over the, over the forces, uh, but he had much more influence and uh, much more of a say. He had a vice, a vice chairman, um, and the combatant commanders had more authority, and they worked uh, chain of command from president to SecDef to combatant commanders. So, uh, and the, and the third thing that came out of Goldwater Nichols was a strengthening of uh, the joints, the joint staff or the joint staffs. So because you have joint staffs and combatant commands also, uh, because in order to become a flag officer, you had to have a joint credit. And so that meant you could no longer be sitting in a joint position and, and be a plant there for your service. You, you really had to become more joint, joint professional military education and those kinds of things too. Um, and that brought us to sort of where we are today. I mean, there was a revisit of Goldwater Nichols in 2014, where some uh, testimony from some pretty important people, Jim, James Locker, who was one of the architects of Goldwater Nichols, uh, a guy named Thomas, uh, had some very um, interesting ideas about what we should do. And uh, Michelle Flournoy, who had been the Undersecretary of Defense for Policy, also testified in 2014. A number of things, ideas came out of that, but none of them were implemented. Right, so it was very, it was mildly interesting that we had those, that testimony, um, and so what piqued my interest since um, since I've been here and working on the defense management side, are a couple things that have been uh, brought out over the years, and some of them really in the in the mid to late '90s when the Department of Defense downsized dramatically. The Army lost a third of its a, a third of its uh, capacity. And uh, a number of people wrote a few things that said, hey, we, we still have bloated staffs. We still have these layers of staff between the services and the departments and the and OSD. Uh, maybe it's time to think about a change in how we manage this enterprise and how we're organized. And so there's something that was published in Joint Forces Quarterly by, by a fellow named Fiore uh, that suggested maybe we should get rid of the military departments, move some of the authority of those military departments to uh, as undersecretaries of defense for different domains and uh, reduce some of the redundancy that is across those military department staffs and OSD and the, and the service staffs. Um, uh, a woman named uh, Amy Ziggart in 1999 wrote a book called Flawed by, Flawed by Design that talked about what I'm just uh, laid out for you in terms of at the uh, origin of the Department of Defense, uh, the current Department of Defense is still haunted by the compromises that were made at that time. Uh, and it's left us with, um, it, it has left us with uh, four budgets, uh, Department of the, each of the different departments and, uh, and an OSD budget because we more and more the defense agencies are taking uh, a larger share of the, the defense budget. Um, and it has allowed the services to claim the force development and force integration role uh, exclusively so that you really don't have any joint development of forces, which results in what I would say is we don't have a joint force. We have service forces that we put together and we call them a joint force, which there's it's it's not as simple as that. But it is it is a problem. It is an issue, uh, especially when when it comes to 
the services fighting for resources among themselves. Uh, I jokingly have said, who's the United States Army's toughest adversary? The answer is it's United States Navy and United States Air Force, which it, it's only a partially a joke because uh, that's that's where most of their most of their conflict comes is in the is in the wars for uh, for top line and resources. And so um, it has also resulted in uh, redundancy, some of which are, has been argued redundancy can be good. It, it gives us options, which is all true. Um, but if effectively, we have four air forces, uh, maybe three of the best air forces in the world in the same Department of Defense, two ground forces, special operating forces in all services, and uh, an intel, uh, you know, 11 intel agencies to include Defense Intelligence Agency, National Ground Intelligence um, Service, and uh, National Reconnaissance Office, all which work with the Department of Defense. Uh, and so the question is whether whether that redundancy is is too much, whether it could be uh, we we could be more efficient, more effective uh, if we take those dollars that we're spending and uh, and be more focused in how we're developing and and employing them. And the last redundancy, I think that I uh, that I believe could be uh, we could we could harvest some. Uh, efficiency without hurting effectiveness is in acquisition, overhead, and bureaucracy. All, all services are all, uh, de all military departments have their own acquisition bureaucracy and an OSD bureaucracy. Uh, science and technology infrastructure across uh, the Department of Defense in all the services, different testing agencies, independent testing agencies in all the services plus, uh, plus DOD, the government industrial base with the depots and and uh, uh, all of the different organizations that are sustainment organizations that are that are part of the government industrial base, uh, public affairs, legislative liaison, contract management, contract auditing, all of the services have their own agencies that do that, and the DoD does. So I believe that there 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 is some uh, value in thinking about how to. Uh, reduce some of that redundancy, especially on the administrative side, and that's and that's where I've come to when it comes to reorganization of DoD. Now, what do you think is the greatest cultural gaps? Because there's obviously structural gaps um, or structural barriers to doing this. You know, you're talking about changing the flow of resources uh, attendant to how the services do their business, and uh, that's always a very uncomfortable conversation. But there's also cultural barriers. I mean, each service is very much attuned to developing its own capabilities and fighting in a domain specific. Is there, um, is there more to it? I, I think that's a great question. It really is. Uh, and it's probably, probably the number one reason why we've had trouble uh, making any headway in changing the way the department is organized. I've always... I've also also always joked that the organization of the Department of Defense must be the best organization ever conceived because it's changed so little since 1947 in terms of function and and who has authority, who has budget, how it's how it's organized and how it's how it's run. Um, from the cultural standpoint, I would say the 
the biggest cultural impediments. And I won't say that these are that these are bad, because as as we've talked about before, strong cultures arise from success. They don't arise because people, somebody feels like we want to do things this way because it benefits us somehow. It it happens because organizations have had success. Um, the Navy has had great success. It's the best Navy in the world. Uh, it's all over the world. In peacetime, wartime, there's never a time that the Navy is not engaged in, in something, in what they're doing, and it's important things. And so I believe from the Navy standpoint, they don't, they don't believe that there's a need even for a Department of Defense. They, they, they believe their independence to do their mission, which is an incredibly important mission, should be unhindered by uh, a Secretary of Defense uh, and, and other claimants on resources. Uh, and they, they could make a good case for it. Uh, before there was a, a large army in the United States, the Navy had primacy. There was a reason it did, and uh, historically has. So I think that's part of the culture. Uh, they're, they're very uh, independent uh, in terms of their how they operate, you know, uh, uh, command at sea, ship at sea, uh, out of contact, out of uh, out of range of of much support, uh, has to be able to operate independently, uh, on intent, on and on. Right. So I think from the Navy standpoint, there's there's very real reasons why they feel this way, good reasons. I think the Air Force is, as we've again, we teach here and we talk about here, uh, they believe that if they lose some of their uh, authority and influence on budgets and other things like that, that what will be sacrificed is uh, the levels of technology that they need in the aircraft uh, to do their job. Uh, and again, why do they think this? Well, we, we have the best aircraft in the world. We're developing even better aircraft as we speak. As we roll out the fifth generation, we're starting to think about the sixth generation. We're starting to think about a better bomber, uh, not starting to think about a better bomber. We're developing one. Uh, and the Air Force will never stop looking for the next best technology to make, uh, to, to put in the hands of their, of their airmen uh, in order to do, a, again, very important jobs. And in both the Navy and the Air Force's culture, they see their jobs as strategic. They're, you know, much more than the Army or the Marine Corps, they are strategic. What they do every day in terms of uh, whether, I'm not just talking about nuclear, but nuclear certainly, those both of those services have nuclear capabilities. And uh, by nature, those are, are strategic. Uh, the ability to reach anywhere in the world. The Air Force doesn't necessarily have to have somebody take them there. They can get there. The Navy doesn't have to have somebody take them there. The Army and the Marine Corps have to. They can't get anywhere without those other services. So I think I think those tech, those cultures, they're good cultures, but they're some of the impediments. Uh, they don't want to in any way, shape, or form sacrifice um, their autonomy in development of what they believe is the is the right technologies and the right weapon systems, 
uh, in order to do what they they see as a job that only they can do. So I, I would say those are the, the biggest, from the services standpoint, uh, the biggest uh, cultural impediments to uh, any organization reorganization that we have to do. You kind of reminded me of this uh, this book that we have used. Uh, we we used as one of the cornerstones of uh, defense management instruction before uh, uh, Builders, um, The Masks of War, which uh, uh, laid out what he felt to be some of the key cultural factors that drove, drive the services in different directions. So um, to what extent does that, uh, what you describe still pretty much hold? That hasn't changed. I think I think the counter to that is that in in any you know go back within the time period of our of our careers say which is on the 30 to 40 year time time span no service has fought alone we have actually fought as a joint force over that over the entire period the Navy couldn't do it by themselves. The Army certainly couldn't do it by themselves. The Air Force couldn't do it by themselves. At times, we've had services say, well, leave that to us. We'll take care of that. We'll have, we'll have this air campaign at the end of that air campaign. And we won't need a ground campaign. And, you know, often that has not proved to be true, despite their best intentions. And so I think that that reality that we actually need all of the services in order to provide the joint force uh, is is a is a reason why we should consider uh, how we how we organize and uh, some of the recommendations that that I'll talk about don't eliminate the services it doesn't mm -hmm. the services are still they still reside within the Department of Defense uh, what changes is that the is is the level above or the layers above and how that uh, that is done. Uh, biggest change that I would suggest that we should consider is to the budgeting, which if you remove the, the secretariat level, who's responsible for the budget right now, the sec secretaries of those military departments are with the support of the services, service staffs and the service chiefs. And so when you move remove that layer and you move it up to OSD, then there are some implications for, for service budgets, right? Uh, and, and I think that that's the, both the fear uh, that the services and the military departments have and the, the danger, uh, actual danger to um, reallocating resources in a way that somehow puts us at risk and that's that's the risk that we're that we're taking in any reorganization. But I would say that if you don't reorganize, there's also risk. And True. that's what we're here to talk about. Because right now what we have is uh, issues with, say, capabilities that one service desires best for another service to provide. I mean, intra-theater airlift is one I know has been an issue in most of my career. So somehow, I mean, the, the, any recommendations has got to find some way to resolve those sorts of differences. Because right now it's an issue because each, each service is trying to make sure its core missions are taken care of. And this is looked at as peripheral. Is that a fair statement? It's, it's very fair. And um, I, I think that we can, 
I believe that the objection that if you say move to a single budget that's managed at DOD and with service input, that those core responsibilities, those core capabilities can still be maintained. They don't have to, you know, I mean, it's not an either or. Oh my gosh, if we don't have the budget, then the army's going to fail. We're going to, you know, we're going to destroy the air force. We're going to all the things that have been said over the years in different testimonies. It's not necessarily, it's not necessary that that be the outcome of it. Um, and so I, I believe that there are ways that we could get at this. Um, and so if, if I could, uh, my most recent thoughts on this, uh, I had a student uh, in, in ABY 21 uh, that wrote a paper uh, based on a committee that he was on to, to look at uh, DOD, or, uh, DOD organization and governance. And he suggested, as again, not all new ideas, that we eliminate the military departments and uh, create undersecretaries of defense by domain. Okay, so air, land, maritime, could be space, cyber, maybe special operating forces, maybe nu some nuclear, uh, nuclear undersecretary. Uh, go to a single DOD budget okay, that's managed at DOD, but with these undersecretaries that are obviously their principal principles to uh, that budgeting. Uh, move the Joint Chiefs of Staff to an advisory board to include the chairman. So they are there to give, provide strategic direction and advice to the people that they're providing advice to today. And then create a joint force command that's responsible for providing trained and ready forces, both headquarters, joint task force headquarters, and the forces themselves. And the services would fall under that joint force headquarters. With, under, with undersecretaries for, for those different domains uh, that are involved in the budgeting. So again, we should think about these things, whether we actually do them or not, or do them in the way that, that Eric Bissonnette wrote. Uh, th that doesn't have to be, but we should, we should certainly think about, because all of the things that I talked about, the redundancies in those, uh, those functions that are, reside at military departments and at OSD, uh, we could we could garner some some real efficiencies if in, in those functions that don't touch our capabilities as much. Yeah, and this would probably also change some of the responsibilities and roles of the defense agencies in, in kind. They would, and, and it would strengthen some of them, and it would um, maybe cause elimination of others. It's hard to know. Well, thank you very much, Lou. It was uh, great talking with you. And again, uh, this is the first episode of a new series. Uh, called How the Army Should Run. Please look uh, out for it at War Room. We'll be releasing episodes in this series uh, occasionally. And so, from the War Room, this is Tom Galvin. Have a great day. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.